see here. Okay, now it's officially recording. Um, but very intentionally, we are having children be in here with families because we want you worshiping with your family in every other area of life, pretty much. Uh, we live in a world where, where everybody is doing their own thing. And so when we come here on Sunday morning, it's our time where we get to gather together and worship Jesus together. And uh, we want to, what we want to do for you is to be able to resource you as families with good materials. And uh, we want you to be your children's minister for your own family. So we have uh, people that are working with children. We're so thankful and we're thankful for, for healthy and uh, vibrant children's ministries and churches we've all been a part of. And we're thankful for what God has done in those. But uh, we want to let's try this out. We want to put uh, the best resources we can in your hands to where you can be the healthiest parents you can be for your children. And so a part of that starts with just this week one. And we have two resources for you. If you're considering being a part of our church and if you're a, a parent, we want to give you this, uh, this worship CD. And it's a kid's worship CD. Our kids will be hearing them here in a minute singing these and jumping around back there to that. But there are 11 songs on here. And these are absolutely fantastic. And in fact, even if you're a visitor, if you want to pick one up and take one, you can take one. Um, but this is just uh, children's worship, and we want to give the, just tools to you for you to be able to pop this into your car, play it, sing it already. We, I saw Jaden, which is uh, uh, John and Angel's nephew. I saw him singing the, the, the number one, the God of Wow, on here on a video. And uh, it's just a lot of fun, and it's, it's really good and rich songs that, uh, that we get to, to really just have our kids to be singing. And so we're already playing this for Ransom. Uh, and then this is another resource we want to put in your hands. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you've not read this before, dads, if you don't know how to study your Bible, uh, this is going to be a huge help for you. Moms, if you don't know how to study your Bible, this will be a huge, huge help. Uh, this book did more for me than New Testament and Old Testament survey classes in college. Um, truly, and it, it sounds like I'm saying it in jest, but it's true. If you want to get a, a, a good handle on what the Bible's about, uh, get the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's going to give you a, a lot of help in just understanding that Jesus is the central theme of the Old and New Testaments. And so there's one central theme about a God who rescues sinners. And, uh, and so we want you to have these. So on the way out today, if you would, grab one of each of these and uh, just start using them at home. And so uh, if we don't have tons of money going towards children's ministry for seventh or seven-year-olds on, uh, that means we can resource you and help you be as healthy as you can. Uh, that hopefully will be better and more healthy families that, that are better, better able to minister to people, neighbors, friends, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's the first thing. Also, um, if your seven to whatever year old is bored, uh, today or in the future weeks, we have uh, board, boredom therapy right here. And uh, because we realize that there are going to be some things that go past their head, but thankfully they have parents that are able to kind of talk to them and help them out and, and teach them some of the things they may not have understood, parents. Um, and so this is drawing sheets. It's, it's different things that they can do if they are kind of bored on a Sunday morning. That's okay. You know, whatever. They can be bored. Uh, but they can read these, and then you can teach them about Jesus. That's the, that's the whole point. So, hey, what's these little forms about? It says Jesus. Who's Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked, and then you can tell them. Um, and then I think that may be it. I might be missing something important, um, and if I am, I'll think about it midway during the service or sermon, and, uh, and hopefully... Okay, let me, uh, let me pray one more time and ask for the Lord's help. We're going to get into Revelation chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn there. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse 1. And uh, we are preaching through, over the next six months or so, the, um, the epistle that Paul wrote, the epistle to the Ephesians. And I love 
the book of Ephesians and uh, all that goes along with the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is really powerful because it starts with uh, a lot of things about God. It's kind of broken into two halves. It, it tells us about God, and then, uh, then in, in light of who God is, it tells us about ourselves. And so we're able to find some identity. We're, we're able to find you know, who God is and what God is about. And then we're better able to understand what our role in this world and our role in this church, our role in this church or the church at large, is. So the first first half of the book tells about those sorts of things, and then the second half of the book uh, kind of lays out the practical outworkings of that. And so for us, as we're planting this church, it's really important for us to know, you know, who is God, uh, who are we in light of who God is, and how do we exist and function as a local church. And so this is going to be, we believe, very formative for us. And so. We uh, are starting, as you see, not in Ephesians chapter 1, but in Revelation chapter 2. And that's really important for us as we begin to open this book because we get a picture of the, of the church in Ephesus at the very end of the, of the Bible, and it's actually the last scene we get of the whole church. And so uh, if we can kind of get the, the final scene, the final word that Jesus has for his church, the church at Ephesus, then if there's positives and negatives, we can kind of see and, and kind of trace the trajectory of their health or their, their unhealthy behaviors back from when they began in Acts 19, which is where we'll be next week. And so we're going to see, is there anything that we can avoid? Because we get 30 years removed from when the, the church is planted, 30 or 40 years removed from when the church is planted. If Jesus has anything to say in the book of, uh, of Revelation to the church at Ephesus that may be helpful for us, some pitfalls that may be helpful for us, then maybe we can avoid the same mistakes that the church at Ephesus made. Because we're going to see, even though they had a lot of things right, there was something very, very central that they missed. And then for us, we don't want to have to learn the hard way. We want to, by God's grace, uh, take all the things that are going on that are good and healthy in the book of Ephesians and in the church at Ephesus. And hopefully that can be present here in our midst. But then uh, this very central thing we don't actually miss out on. We don't want to miss out on this central thing. And so we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2. And, uh, and before we do that, uh, have I prayed yet? Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I need your help here this morning. And uh, we as your people need your help. Holy Spirit, open our, our eyes and our hearts to hear and receive and understand your word this morning. I pray my voice for my voice and congestion and all of that kind of stuff, that, that, would, uh, that you just kind of remove that and, and that there would be clarity and that your word would go forth. God, these people, we, we don't need anything from me. We need to hear from you. That's what I need this morning. I want, to, I, need, I want and need to hear from you. So help us this morning. Help us. Open our ears. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. And there was one big thing that I forgot to mention, and I will mention that. Uh, this section right here of folks uh, mostly are from Christopher First Baptist Church. And we are truly, truly grateful for our official sending church, for their investment in us and their love of us. They have loved on us for the last uh, three and a half months. And uh, it has been a real joy to, to worship with you. And then to feel the support that you guys are, are bringing here today is just really huge. And so we're really thankful. If we if it wasn't for Christopher First Baptist Church, we really, truly, it would have been very, very, I don't think we could have planted and be starting here today. So we're really thankful for Matt Crane, who's the pastor, old buddy of mine, and uh, who is their pastor. And they're here today just to be in support. And so we're really thankful uh, for what God has done through, through you. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1. Let me get there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, one of the things that we need to notice about this uh, introductory statement to Ephesus is that there are a lot of positive things coming to the church in Ephesus from Jesus. Jesus is not simply giving them a correction. Jesus starts with saying, hey, I know that there are some things that are very, very healthy about your church. I'm very aware of them. And they're going really, really well. And I think for us, if we only pay attention to the correction or the rebuke, we'll miss that there is stuff for us to hear in the affirmations, what Jesus is telling them to the positive. And we want these positive things to be in our midst as well. So it's not only, hey, we don't need to forget our first love, which we'll get here to in a minute, but we need to hear the positive things as well. And there are a lot of really incredible things that the Holy Spirit had begun to do in the church at Ephesus. And what are those? Uh, at first we see, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. Patient endurance. Is anybody in here just patient all the time? (laughs) Absolutely not. Uh, My dad and I are the world's worst. When any any kind of like thing gets tangled around anything in the shed, we just yank and pull until it comes out or until something breaks or falls over or whatever. Uh, It's just a part of it. I don't know why. But patience is not something, it's just something I struggle with. It's something the Holy Spirit is, is working in me. But this is something that's going on in the church at Ephesus that's very, very positive. And Jesus says, hey, hey, I see this. I know your patient endurance. They are patiently enduring suffering. Not only that, not only are they patiently enduring, but they can't bear with those who are evil. They have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. If you know who true and false apostles are, it means that you know your Bibles well. It means that you know what true and and right teaching is, right doctrine is, and then it knows what uh, poor doctrine and false doctrine is. And this church evidently could, could tell by the teaching of these false apostles that they were indeed false. They weren't saying right things. And this church couldn't bear with false teaching being taught. And this is a really, really good thing. It's a good thing for us to be doctrinally rich and doctrinally sound. Um, I've said it like this before. If, if I said to my wife, Jordan, I know everything I ever want to wherever my wife is. Jordan, I know everything I ever want to know about you for the rest of your life and mine. Uh, nobody in, in, in here would feel like I was being honoring to her. And she definitely wouldn't feel on, honored because she would be thinking, Jared, isn't there more to me than just what you know now? There's more of me. Like, why are you simply satisfied with knowing what you already know? Why don't you want to know more about me? And it is, in fact, true that it is honoring of me to want to know more about my wife. As we get older, uh, we change a little bit. And you know, if for those who are a little bit older than us, you realize the older you get, there's more things that change, correct? And you have to kind of relearn each other, and you're kind of learning. Then kids, you throw kids in the mix, and now we're learning about marriage with kids and all of that and all the joys of that. It's so much fun. Um, and it's crazy sometimes. You know how it is, right? And, uh, but it's a good thing for me to want to know more about my wife. And this is a good thing happening in the church at Ephesus. They, they love to know sound doctrine. That's a good thing. It, unfortunately, in our world, there are a lot of people who love Jesus with their heart. They think they love Jesus with their heart. But with their mind, they have no idea who He is. And so, unfortunately... The Jesus that they love is the Jesus that they've kind of made up in their imagination. This is the Jesus, this is the character of Jesus that I like. This is the God that I like. Uh, this is that makes sense to my sensibilities. So therefore, I love this Jesus. This church was not like that. 
They loved Jesus. Uh, they, they wanted to know Jesus. And doctrinally, they knew the ins and outs of what is right and what is wrong teaching. So this is a good thing within the church. It's a very good thing within the church. And not only that, they are suffering. Look at this in verse 3. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So this is a church that knows how to bear up and endure during suffering and persecution. They know how to bear up and they know how to suffer for Jesus. This is not a common trait in the church in America, for sure. We don't know how to suffer for Jesus at all. We want to avoid suffering at all costs, in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And this church apparently knew that the suffering that was happening to them, somehow or another, was going to produce glory for Jesus' name. They were suffering well. Now, when you see somebody in your life suffering well, don't you see that that person, man, there, there's some, Jesus must be really valuable. Jesus must be pretty special. These people must be really mature that they're not abandoning their faith in the midst of this difficulty. Well, I think we would stand back and we, we would observe the people who knew how to suffer well. Hey, they were in the fight. We realize that this may even cost us our lives. So this church, so far up to this point in this letter and the word that we get from Jesus to them, they seem to be a pretty rock-solid church. They've got a lot of good things going for them. And so far, the word that Jesus has for them is, is really affirming and positive. There's a lot of really incredible, powerful things happening in the midst of the church at Ephesus. And yet, there's something else that comes against them. Even though they've not even grown weary, they're still in the fight. Here's what Jesus says, but there's this one thing, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. So here's this church, and they got a lot of things right. They were by almost any measurable standard that we could measure a healthy church by, they would pass the test with flying colors. I mean, this is a healthy, healthy church. But Jesus says, hey, you've got all this right, but there's this one central thing that you're missing. And we've got to be careful to not pit these against each other. Like, well, then you have sound doctrine over here, and then you have loving Jesus with your heart over here. These go together. He didn't correct them for the things that he just listed. He didn't say, hey, you're patiently enduring. Stop that. I mean, he didn't do that. It was an affirmation of the things that were going on that were healthy. But then he says, but if you have all that and you miss this, then I'm going to remove my lampstand from your church. I'm going to remove my influence. I'm going to remove my presence. I'm going to remove the work that I've previously done, and I'm not going to do it there any longer. And I think there are testimonies in Southern Illinois and churches throughout, not just Southern Illinois, but all over the place, where at one point there was massive amounts of influence that God had through them. They grew, they exploded, God just massively moved and His Holy Spirit was just, the Holy Spirit was just working and people were meeting Jesus and being baptized and being discipled. But now, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, there's a big empty building. Why? Well, I, I don't want to put, you know, I don't want to put things into the text that aren't, aren't there, but I think still yet God is removing lampstands from churches where they just don't love Jesus anymore. Yeah, they have some measurable things that are right, but God's influence, the way He's working and changing lives, now He's doing it over here in a different spot or a different place with a different group of people. doesn't mean that He's not working or that He's not omnipresent, but it, it does mean that there's some sort of influence now that He's doing. So my hope is, is that uh, we can avoid losing our first love. 
You remember when you first met Jesus or when the Holy Spirit brought the gospel alive to you and your heart was just set aflame? Where the tears flowed freely? Where your love for God, you would do anything. Jesus, whatever, I'm yours. He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. The Pharisees in Matthew 15, verse 8, they get a rebuke from Jesus. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the question for us, is it just when two people get married, they're told by everybody, hey, feelings come and go, and there's going to come to a point where you just got to grit your teeth and you just got to stick it out. It's kind of how the message ends up coming across. Um, it's like feelings come and go, meaning you're just, you're just going to get to a point where you just kind of exist together. And we had one couple, one, who told Jordan and I, don't believe any of that. Don't believe any of that. You can really love each other for the long time. Not saying that you're like gushy over each other all the time. But in our relationship with Jesus, it's almost like that. When people meet Jesus, my friend John, Cody, there's people here. It's like there's this freshness of the love of Jesus all over them. And then everybody's just kind of waiting for them to kind of level out. You know? Just wait. You'll get bored and tired just like the rest of us here pretty soon. And I think, I mean, I want to avoid that. I don't want to have this life following Jesus. It's really mechanical. And yeah, there's a lot of things right, a lot of things that we can just kind of measure and say, we've got this right, we've got this right, and we've got this right. And man, we've got to polish that up a little bit. Um, but yet, I'm just going through the motions. One other illustration or analogy or illusion, whatever this is called. Uh, we were here the other night, and I was getting help on this passage from our small group. And, uh, and Kurt Caldwell said, hey, you know, what if uh, you ladies had husbands that did a lot of right things for you, but it was all cold and mechanical, and they were just always doing the right thing, but they never had any affection toward you? Would you feel loved or honored by that? And all the ladies were like, no, absolutely not. And so it is, I think, entirely possible to be like Ephesus. And the longer we kind of go, the more we kind of we grow theologically, we grow uh, in life, and we get a lot of things right. But then it's like our hearts aren't as far as our minds. And we want both. Like we really do want both. We don't want to just have a group of people that really loves Jesus and then they have no idea what the Bible says at all. Like literally have no idea. They talk about Jesus and it just is the most weird stuff you've ever heard in your life. And then, but we also don't want people who are just, you know, we know everything, but when really is the last time your heart's been moved by the presence of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is just saying, hey, remember who you were, remember what Christ did. Um, so we want both of those things. That's what we want. And so to cultivate that, hopefully, um, to do what we can, I think what we can do is turn our eyes again this morning upon Jesus and then just throw ourselves, because we are dependent upon God, how about we become dependent upon God this morning? And just say there's, there's no level of preaching that I can rise to that will begin to stir your affections. Nothing that I can do that the Holy Spirit can do for you. So how about this first time we're together, uh, how about we just ask God as we, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Go ahead and turn there. And we're actually going to preach there again here in about three months. That's okay. But we're just going to see in this passage that we are unable to simply just, we, we are still, as believers, we're still dependent upon the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And what we do is just ask. We lay ourselves before the Lord. We look to Jesus and we just say, Holy Spirit, work. And fortunately, God is in the business of doing stuff like that. He's in the business of stirring our affections in our heart. And so 
We want to avoid the mistake. Let me state it again. We want to avoid the mistake by God's grace of being the church of Ephesus in 30 or 40 years where we've risen our kids and we've done everything right and we've got this right and we've got our, you know, we've, we're, we're a confessional church, London Baptist Confession 1689, which we are. And we've got all these things in place and all of our statements of faith and we got all right, but then our hearts are just like, <sighs> so we want both, okay? So Ephesians chapter 3. In Revelation 2, Jesus says, repent and do the things you did at first. Next week, Russ Kruder is going to be preaching. And he's going to talk about uh, just the power of the gospel to transform a city and a lot of different things, a lot of different other things. But the first things that the church in Ephesus did is they, they abandoned their idols. They were so in love with Jesus that they stopped buying the idols from the idol makers, the metal workers, and all the workers within Ephesus, within this major metropolitan area. They stopped purchasing the idols they were previously buying because they loved Jesus. They had no need for them anymore. So what they did at first was they abandoned their idols because they loved Jesus. The things that used to be important to them anymore, they, they weren't important. And now Jesus was important. The gospel was important. That spreading, that was important. So the power of the gospel literally transformed an entire city. And that's what we're praying hope happens here in Ephesus. We'll see that here. This is Carbondale, not Ephesus. It happens here in Carbondale. So here, in Ephesians chapter 3, we have a prayer of Paul. And there's two prayers of Paul in the book of Ephesians. And they're both very, very similar. He prays for people who are already Christians. And he prays very unique prayers, because the first one we're going to get to in about five or six or seven weeks. It depends. We'll have to see. The first prayer of Paul for the church at Ephesus in the second half of chapter 1. But this, the first prayer, the second prayer is here. And it's very unique what he prays. Because he um, assumes that the believers in Ephesus are still utterly dependent upon the grace of God. That it's not like they met Jesus and now they needed God less. It's almost as if they needed God just as much or more. And I don't know if you know this, but you need the Holy Spirit to work in your life just as much as you did the day you met Jesus. And hopefully you know that to greater degrees now that you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And if you haven't, if you're not a Christian, let me just tell you, when you meet Jesus, that's the beginning, and you're going to need Him for the rest of your life. And you're going to see the day you die how much more sinful you were than you ever imagined. Like, the older you, I was walking around with a friend of mine yesterday. He's in his 60s, and he's like, the older I get, the more I realize it's just, I am literally nothing. I just desperately need Jesus. It's just, yeah, absolutely. So Ephesians 3, verse 14, starting in verse 14. And my prayer is, is that we all together would agree, this morning at least, that God, we're dependent upon you. So we want our hearts this morning to be stirred. We want our hearts to be, we want our affections to be stirred. We want our hearts to be in this thing. From the very beginning, Jesus, capture our hearts afresh and anew. And if you're, there's a lot of different churches represented here this morning. And if you're not from our church, hey, you know what? We're all family here. Like, and you need your heart stirred again this morning. The Holy Spirit, turning your eyes upon Jesus yet again, afresh and anew. Look with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Let's think about this. He prays for Christians, which is important, and He asks in light of God's glory, in light of how glorious God is, in this passage, in this section, this prayer, it starts with the glory of God and it ends with the glory of God. According to the riches of that glory, may He grant you to be strengthened with power. So, what does that mean? That means then, to be strengthened with power, we need God to do something. Right? 
strengthened with power. We need God to grant that to us this morning. And Paul is praying for this church in Ephesus. Apparently, they were needing some help in the whole love area already. There's areas very early on that they needed help with. And Paul's praying that the Holy Spirit would grant them strength to be, to be strengthened, grant them power to be strengthened. And that's what we need. We, need, we are dependent upon God this morning. So because we are dependent, how about we become dependent? It's a, it's a fact that we are dependent upon God, but how often is it that we don't live that way? We live under the strength and, and depend on ourselves and our reason and our abilities. But since we are dependent upon Him, let's start living that way. It goes on, strengthened with power that you'll have through His Spirit in your inner being. And now we get to this heart factor. Okay? What we're talking about now in the inner being, we're talking about our heart. Okay? We're talking about the affections of the soul. The word heart is used all over the Bible. And the miracle of Christianity is you can actually have a new heart. That if you're not in this room, you have a spiritually, if you're in this room and you're not a believer, you have a spiritually dead heart. But if you're a Christian in this room, you have a spiritually alive heart. God has put a new heart within you. And it beats for different things. You love Jesus now. You don't just have to act like you love Jesus. You really love Jesus now. And so when we talk about strength in your inner being, that's what we're talking about. We want your inner being to be strong. For us, that's what we want. And look at this, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength, and we'll see the strength to do what here in a second. Now here's what's really fascinating to me. These people already have Christ as their Savior. They already have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But Paul says what he says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says that he wants you to be granted strength with power through this Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, they already have Christ dwelling in their hearts, correct? Yeah, they do. But apparently in Paul's prayer, there's this expectation, even though we have all of Christ now, apparently simultaneously, paradoxically, we can have more of Him. It's almost as if Jesus satisfies our soul, and somehow in that satisfaction, we remain thirsty. It's like He gives us all of Himself, and yet we still want more. He has not held back on us. He has not given us partial of Himself. Here, you can have a little bit and He's kind of dangling the carrot and then if you try really hard, you'll get more. He's given us everything and yet there's more of Him for us to have. And so He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And so in, in this room, Holy Spirit, give us faith that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith right now. That Jesus would literally be present. He is present in here. But that our hearts right now would cling to Jesus and we would be stirred again. That all of this would happen. That Jesus would dwell in us and through us. But it doesn't stop. The passage continues to build on itself. So the prayer is granted strength with power so that Christ would dwell in your hearts. That something else would happen. And then you would know something else. And then that you may be filled at the very end with the fullness of God. So in that string of events that Paul is praying for, here's what he's saying. You'll be rooted and grounded in love in verse 18 that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, what is the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now here's where Paul gets wordy, and I love it. This is what the Bible does. It brings us into mystery. Because Paul is going to do something very artistic, 
and very, very mind-stretching and very heartwarming for us. He's going, to appeal, he's going to appeal first to our mind. He said, I pray all of this happens that you would have the strength to comprehend something. So he wants their minds in Ephesus to comprehend, to latch on, to hold on to some truth that he's about to ask, ask for. He wants them to know something he's about to lay out. Are you seeing this? The strength to comprehend with all the saints. So he wants their minds to be able to latch on to something. And it's something that all the saints have already held on to. The saints, whether it be just the apostles, whether it be a lot of times in the Scriptures, most all of the time, in fact, uh, saints are viewed to as the Christians. But here, there's a group of people apparently that have, have comprehended whatever this is to be comprehended. They've comprehended it. And he wants the church of Ephesus to join them in comprehending it. They've learned something. They've held on to something. And I want you also to hold on and to learn this thing. And what is this wording that Paul uses? What is this mystery he invites us into? To know, okay, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and depth of what? Well, I'm really, really, really glad that you want to know. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, now there's two things here that are interesting. One, he says comprehend, and then he says know. Okay, he wants us to comprehend and to know. Mental. But what does he want us to comprehend and to know? Something that surpasses knowledge. Look, he wants us to comprehend and to know something, verse 19, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you comprehend and know something that can't be comprehended? How can you know something that's beyond our ability to even know it? How can your mind go somewhere where your mind is just saying it's beyond comprehension? Well, I think this is what He wants for us. By God's grace, there are people who have come to the point where they've realized the width and the love and the height the depth, and the you name it, the circumference, the world, the, the magnitude of the love of Christ, it is so much beyond comprehension that it's gone from their mind and it's affected their heart. It's not theoretical. It's not something that just they know mentally. They have mentally ascended to the point that they know that this is beyond just me knowing about. I actually have to know the person. I have to know this Jesus. I, I want, it's just experiential knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. It's not just mental ascent. And it's not simply just, well, I just love Jesus with my heart. It's both. You get to the point by the grace of God where you're just blown away by this gospel message. The love of Jesus is that big? Are you kidding me? To where you experience it. You don't just mentally ascend. You mentally ascend to the point where you realize you can't grasp everything through mental ascension. And it's not you check your brains out the door. Not that sort of thing at all. But he prays for all of these things, for this church, and apparently they needed this already, and we see it's a problem that in, the, in Revelation chapter 2. Apparently the, the seeds of this problem were already there in this church. They already were missing the love and the width and the depth of the love of Jesus. Um, people told me a lot, and I get it. I really do what they mean. When you become a father, you're going to understand the love that God has for you so much more. And it's so true. I think it's true in a different way than I've understood that in the past. Because as I look at my son, 
I, there's a million things that I love about, I love my son because he's awesome. There's a lot of motivators in him that make me love him. He's really, if you've seen him, he's really cute. He really is. I mean, and every parent, that, but, but really, he is the cutest. No, no, I mean, no, no, no. He really is. And he's the funniest. And he's a cute, he's just, oh, I just love him. He sits up in my lap, I love him. Um, but here's how the love of God far surpasses that. We are not like that to God at all. There is nothing in us that God found attractive or cute or pretty or funny. Nothing that turned His heart toward us. We find this love is so much greater because we found it in we find it in the very one who gave it. The very one we offended is the very one who gives us love. <laughs> Solely and freely decides, I will love my enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not what, while, when we became cute like my son Ransom. Where there were a lot of reasons then, therefore, me to love. Where love seems really natural. You would say, Jared, why wouldn't you love your son? He's awesome. But the love of God is so much different because the question is, how would you love this group of people who have rebelled against you? They're not awesome. And yet, God, you've been gracious. And for many of us, we've never heard that gospel message before. While you were a sinner, for you, it's, I'm going to clean myself up and try harder. And that's what you think the Christian message is. Nothing could be further from the truth. He will have sinners. That's who he'll have. He won't have people who come to him and won't admit they're a sinner. It's who we are. By God's grace, he changes us, makes us new, makes us people who can actually admit our need. So the love of God far, far outweighs my love for my son. It's just the, the width, width and the depth and all of this. This is what he wants them to experience. Get to the point where it's beyond just theoretics. Get into your heart. And if you're just a heart person, you're just feely goody all the time, then get to your mind. Start thinking about these great truths of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, commenting about this passage. That you may have the strength that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Sorry. What is the breadth and the length and the depth and height? Alas, to a great many religious people, the love of Jesus is not a solid and a substantial thing at all. It's a beautiful fiction, a sentimental belief, a formal theory. But to Paul, it was real. The love of Jesus. Substantial. It was a measurable fact. He had considered it this way and that way and the other way. And it was evidently real to him, whatever it may be to others. No one knows the love of Christ at all if he does not know it to be real. And no one has felt it in his soul at all unless it becomes so real as to constrain him and move him into actual activity. We must realize or make real to our own hearts the love of Christ. That is just what I think the Apostle did. He made it real to himself, the love, the Master, and his Lord. It was not to him to surf a surface theory which may have, been, may, may have breath, but it could not have depth, or a mere narrow statement without length, but no breadth. It was a thing as firm and solid as anything in the world. For as 
For breadth, the love of Jesus is immensity. For length, it is eternity. For depth, it is immeasurability. And for height, it is infinity. O Christian, may the Holy Spirit instruct you in these great things. Um, I want that. I want to experience the love of Christ and see maybe a glimpse of how infinitely glorious it is. And that's what I want for you here this morning. It keeps going, this whole first love thing. We want to be cultivated in us. We're going to experience this love. Um, it keeps going. The love, the love of God in Christ finds its epicenter on the cross of Christ. And I'll just say this real quick. There are two judgments that we see on the cross. We see Christ's judgment and we see our judgment. Uh, Humanity earned a judgment from God on the cross. You and I earned a judgment. And Jesus earned a judgment for His life. In the life we lived, the gavel came down and God judged our lives unworthy. And a cross is the reward for the life that we've lived. And yet, the reward for Jesus was... uh, Infinite joy. The reward that Jesus earned was a declaration from His Father, well done, or this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And these judgments, the epicenter of love in the Bible is seen in the cross of Christ where this great exchange happens. Where for those in Christ, we get the words coming to us, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. We get the judgment that Jesus earned and Jesus took the judgment that we earned. It's absolutely glorious. And that's where we look to see the love of God. And that, I pray, is where the Holy Spirit turns us. So, he keeps going in this prayer. He keeps praying. And in his heart, I can see Paul on his knees as he's praying this or penning this or whatever. He wants them to know. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then it ends with this. that all builds to this point. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Experiencing the love of Christ is the pathway towards greater fullness in God. We will never be full and complete in this life. We will always be moving forward just kind of baby step at a time as the Holy Spirit continues to change and transform us. But the more we know Jesus, the more we experience the love of God in Christ, the more the fullness of God is worked in us. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want for us. For the next, by God's grace, however many years we have, I want more people experiencing more and more of the fullness of God. And for that to happen, all these things previously have to happen. And for that to happen, we need the Holy Spirit of God to move on our hearts. And that is what we need and what we're going to ask for here in just a second. So here we get to our response. The response that Paul lays out for this has been used for almost anything in life. If you have a dream dream bigger, and then God, He's far more able to do all we could ever think or ask. If you have a plan, if you have a purpose, just give it to God. And then the the passage in verse 20 and 21 is read, and look what God will be able to do. And that's not what this means at all. We get to a point of dependency at the end of this prayer, and Paul brings us again to the God who can do what he's praying for him to do. He says this, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. The prayer starts with glory. According to your glory, let this stuff happen. And then it ends with glory. And Paul's prayer is that he knows, God, I know you can do what I'm praying for you to do in the church at Ephesus. And here's what I believe. God, I know that you can do that in us. 
Like, I know, personally, do you know that God can work the love of God in Christ for you? That you can see it afresh and anew here again this morning? That your heart can be turned again? Maybe you've not cried for years. Maybe this morning this is your first time crying in five years because the grace of God is so plain in front of you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's working in a different way. But again, this morning you see that God's working. To Him be the glory. That is our heart here for the long haul. Um, I don't care about glory for me. I don't care about glory for us. I don't care about glory for our church or anything. I want God to be honored. Period. That's why we're here. And I want you to respond to the grace of Jesus today because I want God to be honored. Yes, I want you to know Jesus, but I want you to know Jesus because He's worthy of your worship. And we want the worship of Jesus to go forth in this city. And so here's what we're going to do. Andy and the team is going to come back up. And this morning, this is going to be a practice that we do every single week. I'm going to give you a time to respond. And if you don't know Jesus, this morning you can repent of your sins and you can trust in Jesus. And you can join us on our pursuit of just pointing people to Him for the rest of our lives. And if you are a Christian in this room, then we're going to be receiving communion. And how we're going to do this is, uh, it's going to be a little hairy, I realize that, but come down uh, the center aisle and then kind of go around the sides back to your chair. And what you're going to do, because we have limited room in here, you're going to take the wafer. This is uh, gluten-free. We're millennials, right? you got to do that. Um, and somehow or another, we, we have gluten intolerance. I have no idea how, but uh, unfortunately, I don't. Thank the Lord. Um, then this is just the regular bread. And you're going to dip, and then you're going to receive. So you want to prepare your heart beforehand to come and receive. And I want to read this passage, the institution of the Lord's Supper, because this here, as we get to this point, we have gospel demonstration in front of us. We've had gospel proclamation. We've sung about the gospel. We've already had some response. But now we have gospel demonstration in front of us. When we receive communion, we're seeing the body and the blood of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the upper room, and it's Passover. And he lays out for us what is communion or the Lord's Supper. And I just want to read this because I want our hearts to be prepared as we receive. And this, this uh, time is, is for two purposes. One, it's for you to respond. Like I already said, come if you want to become a Christian or if you just want to sit and just listen to the music and just worship and just thank Jesus for who he is and what he's done, you can do that. But then secondly, as your heart is being prepared, as you think about the work of Christ on your behalf, you come forward and you receive the body and the blood of Jesus. And here's what Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples and apostles who were there on the night of Passover. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When he took the cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, many and forgiveness of sins are important. This communion, this time, is for those who have had their sins forgiven. If you're not a believer in here, we're so glad that you're here, but this is not for you. It's for those who, by God's grace, have been changed. And you come forward and you think about the body that was broken in your place. The body, Jesus' body that was broken for you. That was your body that should have been broken. And His body was broken for you. In great love, He's loved you and He died in your place. And His blood was spilled for you as your blood that was supposed to be spilled. It was His blood that was spilled in your place. And you take and you remember what Christ has done for you. So as we sing in worship, this is your time to prepare your heart to come and receive. And you're going to be able to receive whenever you want to come. You can just come as they're playing. And if you're not a believer, I ask you to restrain from that until hopefully you become a believer. And if you want to meet Jesus this morning, you can just talk to me. Talk to somebody who invited you here this morning. We're able to receive the body and the blood of Jesus this morning because of His grace. Let's stand and let's pray.
Father, You're so good to us. And You have loved us with a real love as if we were lovable. lovable. You have loved us in that way. You've lavished Your love upon us. And we want to experience that here even now as we receive communion. As we think about, as we sing about the glorious Gospel, the good news that God came for sinners. God, help us to be changed by that. I pray that You would grant us strength in our inner being, that we'd have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, breadth, the height, and the depth, and that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Holy Spirit, do it. For Your honor, God, and Your glory. Jesus, it's in Your name I pray. Amen. You are free to sing. Raise a hand. Come forward and receive communion. Take of the bread and dip. Go back to your seat. Let's let the Holy Spirit lead.